0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. First John 5, uh, 18 to 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. What I wanna do this morning is, a little, is something a little different. Before I give you an outline for the sermon, I actually wanna go through the passage verse by verse. And I wanna make sure that we at least hear at an informational level uh, the various truths that John is communicating or has communicated in our text. So if you're familiar with the various disciplines within the church, I kinda wanna start out more like a Bible study and end uh, more like a sermon. So I'm gonna take about 10 minutes and I'm gonna ask you to give me as much of your mental energy as possible. I'm gonna take about 10 minutes and I'm gonna walk through the text verse by verse. Then I'm going to uh, give you three reflections or three thoughts that I have uh, related to the passage. I don't wanna call them points because they'll be much shorter than normal, uh, but we'll conclude with three thoughts uh, more like a sermon from the passage. And here's why I wanna go through this verse by verse. These four verses are the final verses uh, of the epistle, of the letter, and the, the, the ideas and the truths and the concepts contained in these four verses are what John wants on our minds and in our hearts as we walk away uh, from this study. But because these verses are a conclusion to and a summary of what I think is an intricate And rather dense letter, and I don't mean that negatively, I mean that positively, because uh, of this being a conclusion to and a summary of this letter, in my mind, each verse and each phrase and even uh, lots of the words are jam-packed with truth. And and so there's so much here, there's so much in these four verses, uh, even last night I was trying to decide which of three sermons I wanted to preach uh, from these four verses, you understand, of course, that from every passage, there's multiple sermons that are faithful to that passage and good for God's people, right? And so the job of a preacher, at least I understand it to be my job, is to study a passage until I understand what it says, think about uh, the sermon from that passage that God puts on my heart for us as a people, and then I come in and try and preach that sermon, showing that it flows through and from the text, and so last night I had these three sermons that I wanted to preach, and every time I would lean towards one of the three, I would instantly regret the fact that some part of this text was gonna either be overlooked altogether or or completely uh, underemphasized by that one of three sermons, and so I just decided, although it may not be the better part of wisdom, it gave me some relief, uh, I just decided that I'm just gonna walk us through the text in hopes of whatever portion of this passage being the most impactful and meaningful to you, that, in the hopes that we at least speak to it and maybe explain something about it. And then I'm gonna jump into three quick thoughts from the, the sermon, the one sermon, not the three, but the one sermon I found most intriguing and wanted to share with you. So I hope you understand. We're gonna spend about 10 minutes walking through the text, and then we're gonna spend about 15 minutes Uh, looking from a very high level at what is one of the three sermons I could think of from this passage. You ready? If you would, get your worship folder insert out. Uh, The text is printed on the insert, and I'd love to have it in front of you as we walk through the passage. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, Okay, so John is taught uh, throughout the letter that every genuine Christian has been, past tense, born of God. But that past tense, being born of God, has a present tense ramification in their life. John is taught throughout the letter that every genuine Christian has been born of God, born again, Uh, they've been brought to life spiritually by the sovereign decision and the sovereign action of God. And then John writes here what he already wrote in chapter three, chapter three, verse nine. He says here, as their real Christians, do not keep on sinning. And if you're visiting today for the first time, it's really, really important for you to hear this next part. What John means here is not that Christians don't sin, nor that Christians can ever reach perfection in this life. If all you have is this one verse, you might be tempted to think that's what John is saying. What John means when you consider the entirety of the letter is that Christians will not keep on sinning in the same way and to the same extent as they sinned prior to being born again. The Christians will not continue in sin as they did prior to being converted. If you've been with us, you know that John teaches over and over in the letter and he presumes over and over in the letter that Christians will sin until the day they die. But at the same time, Christians will get better every day of their life. We may not be able to see it. We may not be able to understand it. From God's perspective, every day we're getting better, even though every day of our lives will sin until we die. In chapter one, verse eight, John wrote, if we say we have no sin, present tense, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's a passage that says, every day of our lives, we have sin in our lives, in the passage just before our text uh, in, in chapter five, in, in the passage just before this one, John has given instructions on how to pray for people who are sinning publicly. And he calls those people believers. If you see a believer caught in sin, pray this way. The text itself presumes that believers will sin and will sin publicly publicly. And so in verse 18, John is not calling for perfection and he is not stating that perfection is possible. He's just saying Christians get better. We increasingly sin less. We we do not keep on sinning as we did prior to being born of God. Here's why. Look at the second half of verse 18. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. When John writes, uh, he who was born of God, he's talking about Jesus. Okay, what did we just celebrate during Advent? What did we just celebrate during Christmas? We celebrated uh, the the, the child conceived in Mary, conceived in Mary from the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Matthew chapter one. And so even though the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son of God, even though the Son of God was and is eternal, in his incarnation, Jesus was literally born of God. So go back to the verse. Christians do not keep on sinning like they used to, but Jesus protects them, watches over them, guards them, keeps them. And the evil one, that is the devil, the devil and the evil one are titles used interchangeably in chapter three. He says the evil one, the devil, does not touch or seize or fasten himself to them. I don't understand exactly how all this works. John doesn't say in this verse what I would have expected him to say, but he says we sin less because Jesus is guarding us and the devil is not touching us. Verse 19, uh, we know that we are from God, literally of God, and so John is using shorthand. He's reminding us again we're born of God. We belong to God, that is believers. What does he say next? And the whole world lies in the power of God. Of the evil one. Actually, uh, this translation's fine, it's legitimate, it's probably the translation that I prefer, but but in the original Greek, it's very simply written like this The whole world lies in, exists in, the evil one. Uh, In the Greek, the the words in the power of are not included. John, John is saying that the whole world is in the evil one. And by using a passive verb here and by using the verb that he uses, John is painting this picture. He is saying that the whole world is enveloped by, is surrounded by, and is laying in the devil. Now remember, John, when he uses the word world in this, in this epistle, when he uses the concept of world, he's not talking about nature and he's not talking necessarily about people, He's talking about those systemic forces in any environment and in any context that are anti gospel. He's talking about the way in which the devil organizes and orchestrates our culture to be opposed to Christ. We've talked about that multiple times in the past. We cannot get into that again, at least at this point today. Let's keep walking. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God came and has given us understanding. The Greek word here translated as understanding is sometimes translated as mind in the New Testament. Sometimes the word means the ability to understand, the capacity to understand, and sometimes it means something understood. John probably is referring here to the fact that Jesus has given us the capacity to understand the gospel. And having the capacity to understand the gospel, we understand the gospel, and that too is a gift from Jesus. Look again at the text. And we know that the Son of God came and has given us the ability to understand, has given us the mind so that we may know him who is true. John is saying that when we have saving knowledge about Jesus, John is saying that when we personally know Jesus, he is saying that the ability to know and the knowledge itself, the relationship itself is a gift given to us by Jesus. Keep reading in verse 20. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. So we're in God by virtue of the fact that we're in Jesus. Keep reading. He, meaning Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. Do you see how this could be like 74 sermons? Not only do Christians know accurate truth about Jesus, not only do Christians personally know Jesus, John says we're in Jesus. We're united to Jesus. We enjoy a vital and indestructible union with Jesus. And because Jesus is the true God, Christians are united to God. And because Jesus is eternal life, Christians have eternal life in him. Now think about what John has taught so far in the text. Christians are in union with and are vitally connected to God. But the world is in union with and is vitally connected to the devil. Further, unbelievers, usually without knowing it, are in the clutches, the grasp, the hold of the evil one. Finally, look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves, guard yourselves from idols. Now after 3 verses that start out with we know we know we know after 3 verses that contain these massive global eternal truths John gives one command Little children keep yourselves from idols Here's the last thought of the entire book Little children Keep yourselves from taking any created thing and worshiping it it like it's the creator. Little children, keep yourselves from seeking eternal life in anything or in any reality other than Jesus. Little children, keep yourselves from turning a good thing into a deadly thing by trying to make it the ultimate thing. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, with that being said, and hopefully with that, to some degree in your brain, I wanna give you three thoughts from the passage. I want you to see that John tells us something about the strategy of the devil. I want you to see that John tells us something about the ministry of Jesus. And I want you to see that John tells us something about the responsibility of the believer. The strategy of the devil, the ministry of Jesus, the responsibility of the believer. Okay, first, first, John tells us something about the strategy of the devil. We're gonna put it on the screen. You you can see it behind me. Here's the strategy of the devil, or at least a strategy of the devil. In an effort to touch us, seize us, grab hold of us, fasten himself to us, the evil one tempts us with the idols of our culture. So at first glance, verse 21 is this bizarre verse. It seems to be very much out of place. As I said, for three straight verses, John is given these grand theological truths. And then out of nowhere, it seems, he writes this command, keep yourselves from idols. You need to know that John is not having a senior moment. John is not changing the subject really quickly and adding one last thought. In verses 18 through 20, the battle between God and the evil one is the significant theme. In verse 18, the evil one is trying to touch or capture God's children. In our world, verse 19, this world is in the power of the evil one. And John is telling his readers in verse 21 that the idols of their environment are a primary way whereby they are confronted with, whereby they experience And whereby they participate in that battle between God and the evil one. The Holy Scriptures repeatedly teach that there is a devilish and demonic activity involved in idolatry. Think about Adam and Eve. Think about the first sin. Think about the first fall into idolatry. Adam and Eve were tempted to think too highly of themselves as created beings. Adam and Eve were tempted uh, to overvalue knowledge and power and being in the inner circle. Uh, Adam and Eve were tempted to value the creator God less and created things more. That's the definition of idolatry. And who was there in, behind, and with the offer of idolatry? The ancient serpent, Satan, the devil, you have to understand that the first three chapters of Genesis are paradigmatic for the entire Bible. And what that means is this, that the first slip into idolatry by Adam and Eve is paradigmatic for the rest of scriptures. The in and around idolatry is demonic activity. Whether it's the Old Testament prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or or Paul and his letters to the Corinthians, The Bible consistently teaches that idols, and we're gonna define that term in a moment, that that idols, on the one hand, they're, they're false gods. They're not gods at all. They're created things. But on the other hand, the scriptures repeatedly teach that there is a spiritual and demonic activity behind and under and involved in the idolatry. When a human being worships or overvalues a created thing, they've been tempted by, they're influenced by, And they are in some way under the power of the evil one. John is not changing the subject. He's telling us something about the strategy of the devil. The devil does not email us and tell us, just to be fair, I'm trying to capture you and I desire to devour you. The devil does not ordinarily storm through our front door and in some way assault us and in some way demand that we worship him and make us worship him. The devil tries to get us to stop worshiping God and tries to get us to stop living for Jesus by getting us to overvalue, worship, and love good things more than they're worth. Satan is not about us worshiping him. He's about us not worshiping God. And therefore, he tempts us, not with himself, an evil thing, but with good things. In an effort to touch us, fasten himself to us, the evil one tempts us with the idols of our culture. What do we make more important than it is? What do we value more than it deserves? Money, power, sex, reputation, pleasure, marriage, children, being in the inner circle, being in control, having a car, having a house, having a vacation, having a promotion. An idol can be any good thing that we make a deadly thing by trying to make it the ultimate thing. And this is how Satan tries to get to us in his battle with God. Second thought, second thought. John doesn't just tell us something about the strategy of the evil one. John tells us something about the ministry of Jesus. Here it is, it's on the screen. In verse 18, we learn that Jesus is in the present protecting, guarding, keeping everyone who has been born of God. Most of us tend to think of the ministry of Jesus to us as past and his future. When we think about Jesus's ministry to us in the past, we think about his his incarnation, his his perfect life, his sacrificial death on our behalf. We think about him ministering to us in the past. Sometimes we think about Jesus ministering to us in the future. We, We think about his return to earth. We think about him eradicating evil. We think about him establishing his kingdom in full. We tend to think of Jesus' ministry to us as past and future. But if I pressed you and if I said to you, How is Jesus ministering to you right now in the present? I think if you're like me, you would begin to recall certain things like this Uh, Jesus is praying for me right now uh, in the presence of God. Uh, That's true, it's beautiful. Uh, Jesus is renewing me right now by the indwelling spirit. That's true, that's beautiful. Jesus is is, uh, running an awesome construction uh, ministry in heaven, uh, building out lots of rooms on the Father's house. That's true. But I don't think we realize, remember, and reflect enough upon this truth. Right now, this entire time you've been sitting here, Jesus has been protecting you from the touch or the kidnap of the evil one. The devil would love to get his hands on you and Jesus is protecting you. He's defending you. Even if you don't realize it, even if you fail to remember it, even if you never reflect upon it, there he is guarding you keeping you, defending you. As a freshman in high school, uh, I made uh, the varsity soccer team. And by the middle of the season, I was uh, starting in the place of a senior who had started for two and a half years. And the senior, unbeknownst to me, was very, very upset with me. The senior, unbeknownst to me, wanted to fight me, wanted to beat me up, wanted to get his hands on me. Uh, He was upset primarily because I was a blinded, arrogant, prepubescent punk. And I was completely insensitive to his misfortune, to his loss, to the dashing of his dreams. But at any rate, I, I never knew, by the way, I don't recommend if a freshman takes your spot that you go beat them up. I'm just saying I was aloof to it and I was arrogant. But I never knew until years later that he was upset with me. I never knew until years later that he was seeking to get me in a private place. I never knew until years later that he was trying to get his hands on me. And I never knew because my older brother, another senior on the team, got wind of this disgruntled player's plans in regards to me. My older brother went to him and said to him, I know he's a punk, but he's my little brother. And if you're gonna touch him, you're gonna have to go through me. And even if we haven't realized it until now, Jesus has been placing himself between the children of God and the evil one. And he has been saying in effect, I know they're a punk, but it's my little sister. It's my little brother. If you're gonna overpower them, you're gonna have to first overpower me. If you're gonna capture them, you're gonna have to go through me. I love the second verse of Psalm 103. I love our call to worship. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And of course, the point of the Psalm is there are too many benefits to remember and we are constantly forgetting them. And in this passage, John is telling us something about the ministry of Jesus. And I think it's an aspect, it's a benefit, it's a blessing, it's a work we easily forget. Regardless of what's going on in our lives, Jesus is there defending, protecting, holding us in the palm of his hand. In John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says this, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them, seize them, kidnap them out of my hand. Final thought for this morning. John tells us something about the responsibility of the believer. Here it is. Here's what he tells us. It's on the screen. We are responsible to keep ourselves from idols as Jesus protects us from the evil one. Now, John in the Greek has made a connection in our passage that is lost on us in our translation. Every other major translation says this in verse 18. He who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Because our text says protects instead of keeps, we miss the connection with verse 21. In verse 21, John writes, keep yourself away from idols. Jesus first keeps us away from the evil one, and we second keep ourselves away from the idols. And there is a paradox here. There is a mystery here. On the one hand, the passage is clear that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign over, and God is sufficient in our salvation. I mean, look at all that the passage says. We're born of God. Jesus is keeping us. God has given us the ability to understand. But on the other hand, the passage is clear. We have this responsibility as believers to keep ourselves from idols. First, he keeps us keeps us from being touched by the evil one. And second, we keep ourselves from idols. The best way to understand the passage as a whole and the best way to understand 1 John is this. Those who do not increasingly keep themselves from idols are not born of God. But those who do increasingly keep themselves from idols are. We have the responsibility to increasingly keep ourselves from idols as we respond to, as we believe in, as we live in light of the fact that God has brought us to life, that Jesus is protecting us, and that all the while the Holy Spirit is giving us the capacity to understand and he's giving us understanding. With that said, three quick thoughts related to responsibility. Three points of application as we close. First, a significant portion of our heart is inclined towards idolatry. John doesn't write, keep your guard up against the occasional attack of the idol. He says, keep yourself literally away from the idols. The human heart prior to conversion doesn't value the biblical Jesus at all. And therefore the human heart prior to conversion constantly and incessantly overvalues created things. The believer's heart values Jesus more and more across time, but will always have a portion of their heart that is inclined towards idolatry. In light of this fact, we have to constantly ask ourselves what good thing am I valuing too much? What good thing am I making the ultimate thing? In light of what precedes verse 21 and verse 20, we have to constantly ask ourselves what good thing am I pursuing? as if gaining it will give me abundant life, eternal life. In light of what proceeds in verse 20, we have to ask ourselves about idols. What good thing am I protecting? As though the loss of it will bring my life to an end. You see, the human heart was made to find eternal and abundant life in God. And separated from God, we seek this reality in created things. Our hearts are so inclined to idolatry. Second, second thought. The idols of our culture are particularly enticing. Remember verse 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When you study history, you can notice the idols of society's past. And you're like, why in the world were they attracted to that value or that concept or that idea? Well, it's because verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And those were their idols more so than our idols. So, give you a few examples. In our day and age, pleasure, particularly sex, has become a rampant idol. Historically, our desire for pleasure and our deifying of sex. Historically, it's hard to compare. So think, sex and pleasure are good things. They're created by God, but they become deadly and destructive when we try to make them the ultimate thing. What happens when we take pleasure and make it our ultimate desire? An entire catalog of addictions. Thrill-seeking behavior, sex, drugs, etc cetera, etc cetera. think about inclusivity inclusivity a couple hundred years ago would have never been a cultural idol it is a huge idol in our day and age the bible would absolutely encourage us to accept everyone created in the image of god to treat them with dignity and honor but the bible would never encourage us to approve of everyone's ideas and to approve of everyone's uh, behaviors so how can inclusivity, a good thing, I mean, we're included in, uh, in what God has as his glory. We are included in his glory by grace. Inclusivity is a, is a very good thing. But how has it become a deadly thing when we try to make it the ultimate thing? Well, as soon as the church says, not only are you accepted, but all of your ideas and behaviors are approved of, we lose the gospel. And when we lose the gospel, we lose Jesus, and when we lose Jesus, we lose life. That's just another example of how the enemy wants to kill us by taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. If you've been with us throughout this series, you know that 1 John, this idea of inclusivity is a huge part of 1 John. John is saying that the community has to be accepting of everyone because of God's grace, but the community has to hold to truth because the truth is where the gospel is found, and where the gospel is found is where life is found. Final thought related to our responsibility. The best way to keep yourself from idols is to increasingly know the true God. The very best way to keep yourself from idols is to increasingly know the true God. The best way to keep yourself from giving a God-sized affection to a created thing is to give God the affection of which he is worthy. This is what John is saying in verse 20. The son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. He is the true God and eternal life. Before John says anything about staying away from idols, he encourages us to move towards, to worship, to love, to know the ultimate good. Father, Son, and Spirit, saving their people, renewing all things. And the reason that we move towards God and give him our God-sized affection is so that we can then in turn enjoy his world and all the good things that he's given to us in this world. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna do exactly this. We're gonna sing songs to Jesus and to the Father and to the Spirit, praising them, for the life we have in them. And then we're gonna talk more about this as we prepare for communion. Let's do that. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your gospel. We thank you that we come to church and are reminded yet again of all that you've been doing for us while we are away. And we are, are, are learning, some of us, this morning for the first time of things that you have been doing for us that we knew nothing about. You are such a good and sufficient and sovereign and wonderful Savior. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for the salvation, past, present, and future that is ours in Christ. We pray that you would help us uh, this morning to see how beautiful you are. Uh, Help us this morning to see how brilliant you are. Uh, Help us this morning to be ravished by you, to be caught up in you, that we might give you what you deserve and thereby be free to live in this world unencumbered by idolatry. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a holy affection and a massive affection for the the Trinity and for the gospel. In your name we pray.